1: Setting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hi, I'm Elizabeth Ferry. Welcome to another rebroadcast from the RTB Archives. There has to be some way of imagining
2: democratic equality that doesn't sidestep historically derived differences.
0: From Brandeis University, welcome to Recall This Book, a podcast that looks backwards to see into the future. Our idea is to assemble scholars and writers from different disciplines to make sense of contemporary issues, problems, and events. By looking at books that shaped the world we inherited. Today, the hosts are John Plotz, professor of English from Brandeis. Hello, John. And we are joined by Ajanta Subramanian. And the topic for today will be meritocracy and privilege in higher education. Ajanta is professor of anthropology and South Asian studies at Harvard University. Her first book, Shoreline, Space and Rights in South India, published in 2009 by Stanford University Press, chronicles the struggles for resource rights by Catholic fishers on India's southwestern coast. Her new book is called The Cast of Merit, Engineering Education in India, and it was published in 2019 by Harvard University Press. In it, she studies students and alumni of the Indian Institutes of Technology, focusing on questions of meritocracy and democracy in India in order to understand the production of merit as a form of caste property and its implications for democratic transformation. So Ajanta, could you start and tell us a little bit about the project, what inspired you to do it, and maybe a little bit what the fieldwork was like?
2: Sure. And so this I want to say that this project has been in the making for most of my life mm-hmm. because I've been surrounded by engineers for most of my life, mm-hmm. many of whom are members of my own family, and I've been told repeatedly, especially by opinionated uncles uh, that my choice of anthropology was a frivolous one. Mm-hmm. And I was only able to make it because my father worked in international development and mm-hmm. was able to afford me the luxury of pursuing wins, oh, <laughs> right? So I was always not a real study and not language. a real study. Absolutely. Yeah. So, and that, you know, and that so sort of implied in that was both that the social sciences weren't, weren't real. Mm-hmm. And it, uh, that they were sort of flimsy, it was very familiar times. Uh, there were flimsy forms of knowledge, but also that I didn't have to think about my bread and butter, mm-hmm. right? Uh, that because my my father had left India and was mm-hmm. a dollar earner, that I you know didn't have to think in terms of social mobility, right? So um, I mean, I so I think that this irritation. Uh, mm-hmm. At at being sort of dismissed so easily mm-hmm. uh, was always sort of with me. Mm-hmm. Um, so would you say this book is retaliation? <laughs> <laughs> but but I also think it was just um, being exposed to an inc- an incredibly shrill politics around merit mm-hmm. in India, um, and especially the kind of backlash against expanding affirmative action um, within the technical sciences. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something else that I was privy to for you know, decades. Mm-hmm. Um, and then coming to Harvard, uh, where, you know, the language of merit all around you, um, mm-hmm. and you know, there are sort of assumptions about individual talent and desert, mm-hmm. uh, uh, that totally sort of sidestep the question of structural inequality. Mm-hmm. And inherited advantages and disadvantages. So I think the combination of all of these things um, sort of led me to the book. I mm-hmm. suppose the 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 kind of biggest argument of the book um, is that claims to merit are expressions of upper castness, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I mean that meritocracy as a politics is an identitarian politics, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And
1: and merit gets marked how in this like the in your case study is this through IIT is that the
2: yeah so so there's the the site where I uh, did the study was a set of institutions called the Institutes of Technology which are sort of the cream of undergraduate mm-hmm. education in India and especially undergraduate technical education uh, they're uh, impossible to get into um mm-hmm. it there's a there's an annual exam every year where you know up to a million uh, people, uh, you know, take the exam, and under three percent get in. So it's mm-hmm. like an incredibly competitive. Or do mm-hmm. uh, you know, they're like billboards and things? Yeah, the I mean, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. I mean, these institutions are a household word. They're a kind of proven means to professional advancement mm-hmm. and social mobility. So, and 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 they're also seen as these kind of havens of meritocracy. see. Mm-hmm. Uh, within uh, a national education system, which is kind of um, mediocre, you know, which uh, which fails its students, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, mm-hmm. this these institutions are seen as holding out the kind of the promise of yeah. uh,
0: mm-hmm. of true merit, yeah. right? And, and they're public institutions. They're right? public institutions, which is a big difference with some of the most the institutions regarded as elite in the United States. Absolutely, mm-hmm.
2: yeah, yeah. And they're public institutions. But highly, highly selective public institutions, mm-hmm. right? So, and
1: are they understood as democratizing? Like, is there a rhetoric that goes back to the founding of the state, or or not that far? That has that sees them as part of a democratizing project, or
2: so? I think in general, technical education is seen as democratizing, ah. right? So, you know, from from the early twentieth century on, and especially after independence, um, you had this you had massive state investment in technical training, yeah, uh, yeah. as as a kind of Corollary in the education field of this broader commitment to technologically yeah. driven right. Uh, modernization, mm-hmm. right? right. Uh, so, I mean, there was an explosion of institutions um, post-independence, but interestingly, this one set of institutions, the IITs, were always set apart mm-hmm. from this kind of larger um, impetus to democratize access to higher education, right? Yeah. So, they were seen as exceptional, right? Mm-hmm. They were set apart as institutions of excellence, and this is this is actually what they were called: institutions of excellence, of national excellence. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's this amazing quote from Nehru um, in these sort of early days when, you know, the the pros and cons of creating this new hyper exclusive tier of mm-hmm. public institutions was yeah. being debated in the parliament, and he said, you know, uh, that's, that that. Uh, unf- I, I, I have, this is a paraphrase, but something along the lines of you know, uh, democracy is a good thing, but uh, unfortunately, it can lead to mediocrity, mm-hmm. right? right. So, and that there there are certain spaces which should be set apart from the equity mandate, right? right. Should be set apart as spaces of excellence, right? So right. these were always seen as exceptional. Right? Mm-hmm. So public but exceptional. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And, public but ex-
1: No, it, it makes me wish I knew the French example better because I feel like right. in France, they're Simil- similar. They have they're the, the kind of plucked universities. I yeah. mean, there's a large state access like you said i mean funded by the state but that there are this you know the sites of selection as well right but i mean i'm sure in america we can think of a hundred ways that the parallel plays out too yeah think about the earlier tradition of the ivy leagues Mm -hmm. and something like mit which is a technology institute but on Mm -hmm. the other hand it also somehow exists in that same
0: and also those so-called public ivies right
1: yeah yeah right Right, exactly Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah
2: yeah and even within the big uh public university systems, there's always like the flagship institution, right? right. Which is done yes. is more excellent than yes. the rest.
0: Yes. yes. And just to complete the sort of uh, description of your argument, most of the people who end up in the IITs are Brahmin.
2: Not Brahmin, but upper caste, Okay, um, which is a kind of broader category. Right, right. Um, so, yeah. So one of the ways that this set of institutions was kind of set apart from you know the larger sort of project of equalizing access to education was they were exempted from caste-based affirmative action. Mm-hmm. Um, so until you know, so so through the first two decades after their founding, mm-hmm. um, there was no affirmative action at all. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Whereas there was for other universities.
2: Whereas there were for even the very next tier of mm-hmm. institutions, right? And I mean the thing I should say is that um, unlike the next tier of institutions, many of which were regionally administered so they were administered at the regional level mm-hmm. this administration was centrally administered so mm-hmm. they came under the purview of the federal government okay. the of the regional yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and so the regional quotas for lower caste that existed did not apply to these mm-hmm. institutions, right and so they were set apart from affirmative action and so you know it had the obvious result of uh, making the student body um, overwhelmingly both upper caste and I mean also upper middle class, although there there were some exemptions. Mm-hmm. Um but this in the in the nineteen seventies, the central government did introduce one set of quotas for the lowest tier uh, um of social groups. So mm-hmm. the scheduled castes who are now called the Dalits mm-hmm. and Scheduled Tribes. Um mm-hmm. uh but you know, the sort of overall state of education was such that, you know, they rarely filled those quotas. Mm-hmm. Um and so and it was only in the nineteen nineties um and two thousands that uh new quotas were introduced for the intermediate rung. of okay. Mm-hmm. Who might, in fact, be more likely to actually right, end exactly, up in Exactly. Who were, who were actually much more of a threat. <laughs> right. Right. To yeah. kind of upper caste hegemony of these institutions.
1: Yeah. yeah. So can I ask you to gloss out like I wonder one of my favorite sentences in this awesome book is you say that the leveraging of merit must be seen as an expression of upper caste identitarianism that attempts to forestall progress towards a more egalitarian society and derives its legitimacy from a larger global politics of the description. And I kind of want to go back to larger global politics because yeah. I think that is a really interesting yeah. place to think yeah. about the U.S. situation. But can you just talk about the leveraging of merit, which I feel like that's a crucial idea for you, yeah. and I'd love to hear you say more about that.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, this, this is fam- this must be familiar to you know people who are not familiar with India, that merit becomes this... Way of uh, claiming one's successes, you know, be they educational or professional, as the product of hard work, right? right? Of hard work, of and talent. talent, individual right. ability, mm-hmm. right. certain kinds of sort of innate qualities, mm-hmm. right? right. Um, so merit becomes a way of bracketing structural considerations altogether, mm-hmm. right. right? So one of the things that's so evident at these institutions and also in, in India more generally is every time there's a kind of claim on a previously kind of exclusive institutional space, Mm -hmm. right? Whether it's the state, you know, so the state bureaucracy or, you know, higher educational institutions, the pushback is typically in the language of merit. Mm -hmm. We have to preserve merit at all costs, Mm -hmm. right? That to, um, to allow access to new groups um to uh you know to to allow them entry on on different grounds right. uh would be to undercut an incredibly important democratic principle, right? Mm -hmm. And the democratic principle is the principle of
1: meritocracy. So that makes total sense to me, but can you say more about the leveraging of merit must be seen as an expression of upper caste identitarianism? Yeah. Because I think naively, I think of identitarianism as deliberately embraced descriptive identity. As as
0: explicit.
1: Yeah, as explicit. Whereas what you're describing sounds to me like a it's a kind of misrecognition or a proxy yeah yeah
0: so
2: So, i mean i should say that i don't know what the response to this book is going to be but i expect that the thing that my interlocutors will hate the most (laughs) um is is being called cast subjects Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. i don't think that they'll care at all about the leveraging part yeah right because you know they believe that the world is one of competition Right. right uh that groups um you know, are in a tussle with other groups and you use whatever means there are at your disposal to get it. That idea, I think, would be fine with them. Mm -hmm. What I think they would object to is being seen as expressing caste identity Mm -hmm. through those forms of of leveraging. Mm -hmm. Um, So they do see themselves as a kind of corporate unit, Mm -hmm. right? But the corporate identity is an institutional one.
1: Mm-hmm. They see
2: right. themselves as IITs mm-hmm. or a, or a kind of occupational one. They see themselves as engineers. So they're all mm-hmm. these they're all these corporate brand they. that they mm-hmm. are completely comfortable with. Right. You know? But caste, I think, yeah. is one that they they, they actively uh-huh. disavow. Right, and they don't they don't disavow it yeah. as as culture. So what I mean by that is, so if I if I ask them, you know, what's your caste background? I think many of them would would say what it is, right? Mm-hmm. And, but to see it as a structural advantage yeah. is something that they would strongly object.
1: But so is that then a language, is there a kind of implicit tokenism then? Well, will they will cite an example of some friend of theirs, a, a fellow IIT. And, Didn't get in. No, who's not of their caste. Like in other words, there's Joe, oh. who's a Dalit. Oh, whatever.
2: absolutely. But, mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. yeah.
1: Because um, I feel like that's an, in America, you know, that, you know, my black, yeah. my black friend, right. is, yeah. you know, like, yeah. we remember that, you know, that's like a sitcom move.
2: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but- yeah. But here, I mean, it's, it's interesting because I, more than that, there's a kind of claim that cast was invisible to them, at least within mm-hmm. the space of the institution. And that this is something that, again, sets the IITs apart from the rest of
1: you don't see cats while you're in well, it. We're, all just, we're
2: all just like other yeah. people, yeah, right? Exactly. right? We're just all being smart together, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, that, and that you leave behind all of these unfortunate, right, yeah. Yeah. Uh, carryovers from a kind of pre-modern past. Right. You right. leave those all behind and you enter the space
0: of the institution and you're right. kind of remade, right? And does this make, is the idea that that sort of makes people kind of, on the springboard to global citizenship? Like they're Well global but also national. Okay. But like there's something really important about a national
2: project of Uh transcending caste, right? But then how is that identitarianism?
1: That's I think I still don't get that. Because that feels like it's a I mean it structurally might legitimate people in upper caste Position. You know, you can still ben- you benefit from your status, yeah. but doesn't identitarianism isn't identitarianism pre- predicated on positively ascribing, uh, claiming belonging, or yeah?
2: So Stuart Hall has this interesting argument about yeah. uh, race not always speaking in its own language, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That there are other descriptors, um, other forms of. Sort of got discursive markers. self-marking uh-huh. Uh-huh. that stand in for race, right? Uh-huh. And and you recognize it as race yeah. based on what it is arrayed against, right? Yeah. So in this instance, you know, this kind of corporate identity is, is 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 not just leveraged as a means to, you know, whatever, accumulation, advancement, etc. Yeah. It's also pitted against something, right? Yeah. And the 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 thing that it's pitted against is lower caste yeah. right so it's a kind of disidentification mm-hmm. with yeah, yeah. this other corporate group and it's that kind of binary formulation of what one is that allows you to see that this is in fact a form of upper caste yeah right yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so that kind of the oppositional framing is super important right right mm-hmm. and that's where that's where you that that's what kind of calls the lie to this as non-identitarian right, right? like it's they, they use a, a universalistic language yeah. to describe themselves, but it's also one that's antithetical to certain other groupings, mm-hmm. right? And that's kind of... Yeah, so it's in, see, positioning. it's in the position. It's in the position vis-a-vis other yeah. groups, who, of course, they charge with being identitarian, right? Right, right. right? so yeah. I mean, And it's a similar thing with... Um,
1: which is why you think they'll react strongly against? Yes, us. because you think they will say, "Oh no, that's what my opponents are doing." Yeah, that's not what we're doing. That's not yeah. What I'm yeah. doing.
2: Yeah. yeah, yeah. In fact, we're against caste. Yeah, right. Um, yeah. and we're against a politics of caste. Right. Um, yeah.
0: So one of the things that's very um, exciting about the argument is the way that it mobilizes other kinds of languages about other kinds of categories. Maybe especially whiteness. Yeah. Uh, you talk about upper casteness, which I think is your term, right? It's it's my awkward
2: neologism,
0: right? But that no, that it's to get word is right. It's in order to invoke whiteness, right? That a yeah, process is, right. and you talk about it as property and as a possessive accumulation. So you're sort of drawing on these other conversations yeah. about whiteness, yeah. and this to a non-Indianist, non-specialist in India. Um, maybe especially an anthropologist but probably more broadly, is really interesting because caste is often thought of as being, you know, radically different from race on the one hand sure. and yeah. uh, class sure. on the other, yeah. and you're sort of showing the com- complex ways in which it um, is, in which its sort of mechanism is the same. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if you want to say more on more.
2: That. Yeah, I mean, this is, I think um, and I'm certainly not the only one who's done this, lots of people have argued for making caste more obviously comparable mm-hmm. right, to yeah. other uh, systems of social stratification right mm-hmm. that yeah. caste is so often kind of Same. seen as as the <laughs> emblematic marker of Indian cultural difference, you right. know, something
0: that is so particular right. 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 that it can't be compared or discussed alongside. Yep. And- or it's, it'll, yeah. it can only be compared on the basis of its radical difference. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 As a kind of foil. Yeah.
2: I mean, I teach a course called Race and Caste and uh, it's very interesting. All of the kind of non-Indian, non-South Asian students in the class mm-hmm. uh, were initially very nervous, um, about the caste literature that we were covering, because they assumed that it was it would it would never be familiar to them,
0: right? Mm-hmm.
2: And and my, my and the structure of the course was such that they they were forced to think them together, right? right. So like yeah. every module was on a a certain topic, like the plantation, where uh-huh. okay, oh, hey, you see how the plantation as a technology has produced both caste and race, mm. yeah, and you know, and um, the census has produced both caste and race, and so yeah, oh, nice, yeah. yeah. Anyway, so, then
1: so in that class, do you have a configuration for the triangle that Elizabeth alluded to, like cast, class. class, and yeah, and race? Yeah.
2: I mean, part of the point of the class is to insist that one of the reasons cast and class, uh, cast and race are comparable, yeah, is because of um, a history of capitalist transformation, <laughs>
1: mm-hmm.
2: right? So, um, cast and class. Um, I mean, caste and race were, uh, you know, were sort of instruments for the expansion of an imperial political economy. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's important and a to think naturalization of difference that is, um, smooths that process.
2: Yeah, but also that one cannot think about class formation. Mm-hmm. Outside of these other right. categories, right? Mm-hmm. so when you think about class formation in a place like India mm-hmm. or class formation in the United States,
0: mm-hmm.
2: you know it was always rooted through these sort of so-called ascriptive categories right. Right? Yeah. of race and caste. So, yeah. cl- so class was never something that operated in isolation from. So it's it's mm-hmm. less a kind of argument about inter- intersectionality. Yeah. Intersectionality mean, like, still keeps these things as like separate structures that then Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, right, yeah,
2: right? But I'm saying that you know, class formation is inherently a caste process.
0: Yeah. Right. Um. You you can't think about yeah. it outside of caste.
1: Good. I hope you said that. Because yeah, it seems yeah. like a good connection. To yeah. This seems right. like
0: yeah. a good moment yeah. uh, to introduce our second text, which is really bringing to the forefront these kinds of com- comparisons. Yeah. Um. The text is by Seamus Kahn. It's called the. It's called Privilege. The Making of an Adolescent Elite at St. Paul's School, and it was published in 2011 by Princeton. Um, And uh, Khan was a student at St. Paul's. Uh, He's also a South Asian American, Mm -hmm. Um, and he then became a teacher as a sociologist. So he was a teacher at St. Paul's, um, but it was understood that he was doing his sociological study of St. Paul's as part of it and he makes a really interesting argument about about a kind of shift in the way in which privilege is um mobilized over the past i can't remember exactly the few decades let's say yeah. mm-hmm. um since probably he was a student yeah. um not mm-hmm. um, that long no it's not right. that long right. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 20 years
1: yeah, yeah. i was going to say 30 years seems like long to me I yeah
0: maybe saying maybe shorter yeah. yeah um
1: Data from the Although I feel like even there,
0: by the 80s, it was yeah. sort of starting.
1: Uh-huh. Yeah. But anyhow. Read is good. Yes. Um, yeah.
0: Well, in the, I mean, specifically this shift from sort of privilege as being marked by the kind of boundaries that you can keep
2: mm-hmm. and
0: yeah. the way that you can keep people out. Yeah. yeah. Um, from a much more kind of, in some ways, immediately seemingly appealing mode of privilege but also maybe more insidious because of that which is sort of privilege as this ease of being able to go anywhere right like Mm -hmm. now you don't have to buy stuff from brooks brothers you can buy stuff from target but it's your ability to buy stuff from target and brooks brothers that kind of marks you as privileged
1: yeah Uh, can i just quote his three lessons of privilege because they seem so So yeah yeah, they're great and yet they're so paradoxical but okay so the three, three lessons are one hierarchies are natural and can be used to one's advantage two experiences matter more than innate or inherited qualities (laughs) so worth unpacking and three the way to signal your elite status to others is through ease and openness in all social contexts inequality is ever present but elites now view it as fair yeah right Yeah. yeah right so ease and openness yes but not democratic level right right so you get to that, go everywhere but yeah. you go everywhere across difference
0: yeah and you're, you know, yeah. and there's a differential distribution of the ability to go everywhere
1: absolutely And he
0: right. talks about mm-hmm. see
2: hierarchies as ladders can climb mm-hmm. right right yeah and and this idea that you know that, that everyone has opportunity right stands in for a true commitment to equality right yeah Right. Yeah. so opportunities
0: takes the place of equality right 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 yeah. and I mean to me it seems sort of an extension or a like it's more it's making the language of merit even more flexible, right because it's sort of it makes it into this kind of traveling quality that isn't just linked to um, what used to be called breeding, or accent, yeah. or yeah. you know, yeah. so all these kinds yeah. of things.
2: Yeah, uh, and that's and that's partly the alibi, right? Um, right? But as he says, Saint Paul's has changed, <laughs> yep. right? I mean, it does. It looks, it looks more like the world, mm-hmm. um, or like the nation, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, except, you know, you scratch the surface and you realize that, you know, in terms of class, for instance, right? Uh, there is still uh, a uniformity, yeah. you know, To who is able to come, right, right, right. But it's this, it's this idea that you know the doors are now open uh-huh. um, and people can come in, and that, um, and that the new kind of uh, outsiders, right, mm-hmm. are are the ones from these uh, these old elite families, right, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. ones who think that they're simply entitled to St. Paul's because but, uh, their legacy admits. I mean, they're the
0: ones who are now seen as. As not embodying yeah. the spirit so of deeply uncool. the institution, right, yeah. right, yeah. And yeah, yeah. then the other part of it is, yes, it may look like more like the nation, and there may be even be some class diversity, but the experience of say Paul's is radically different for those different mm-hmm. students, That's right, right. Yeah. and yeah. the ways in which they are made to feel like they belong or not.
2: Yeah, no, yeah. yeah. So by the end, I mean you you see that working um, class kids and non white kids um, are able to inhabit at ease in the same way right um and especially if if they insist on um keeping their own backgrounds in the foreground right but um you know uh, they're seen as somehow sort of intransigent
0: right right Right. um there's an interesting um anthropological article um about diversity as a resource on college campuses, yeah. and it's sort of connected to this, right? It's like the the working class and students of color who are there are sort of there partly to be mobilized, not yeah. necessarily to mobilize themselves, right? Right. right. So if mm-hmm. they don't kind of play that role effectively, then there yeah. are costs. Yeah. yeah,
2: yeah. So this one black girl that he writes about mm-hmm. is is somewhat friendless because you know she's so aware of. You know all the people from her neighborhood who aren't at St. Paul's, right. right? Even as her presence is being celebrated, she's yes. so acutely aware of how exclusionary the space actually is. Yeah, right? yeah. Uh, and no one wants to remind us for that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so, well, like yeah.
0: I think
1: that I, I wasn't supposed, I, to job, right. Right. That, right? was supposed to be her job
0: coming there, right?
1: I think I plugged this book before, but that Anthony Jack about <laughs> yeah. the privileged poor. I think yeah. it's fascinating yeah. about that. Just like kind of giving that as a sort of more granularity to that way that you can arrive and then serve the purpose yes. yeah 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 diversity for others benefit
0: yeah. exactly yeah. yeah yeah
1: no i feel like the in the the insight about access is not the same as equality is mm-hmm. is the crucial one there
2: i mean the, the i guess the difference is that he's really emphasizing this discontinuity between um a kind of older cohort mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. and this kind of newer group mm-hmm. yeah and, and I don't um I was I was thinking about whether that uh applied to the IITs and I think it does and it doesn't. Mm-hmm. You know?
0: Um Well here is where I think the public character of the institution and its sort of part of being sort of created as part of a national project makes a difference, right? Yeah. That was not what Saint Paul's was no. invented for. No. no um no. But also the', the, yeah. the, the matri- he was always supposed the majority to educate the sons of the elite right right that was what it was for. Right
2: And like here the majority of the IITs are actually, and this is part of their claim to merit is that they're not from um, the industrial elite or oh. the business elite or, or even necessarily the landed elite um, uh-huh. um, you know these are the children of civil servants uh-huh. right um, these are people who really kind of. Uh, Enter the professional class through the state, mm-hmm. right? I mean, they are beneficiaries of right. of state developmentalism, yeah. right? Whether in the colonial or post colonial period, um, but they're upper caste. So this combination of being upper caste mm-hmm. and middle class, I think, mm-hmm. makes for a different story yeah. than the one that um, Seamus Khan is telling, yeah. right? If that's
0: right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 Yeah, so perhaps we should shift to recallable books. Yeah, that like a good moment.
1: It so. does. We, actually, can I just look? I just have one. I have such an inchoate question, can, so you guys can give a sharp answer to a dumb question. Which is that I, in terms of the temporality of disjunction yeah. here, I'm still trying to think about how this relates to kind of the most current rise of ethno nationalism. Yes, yeah. and I mean I heard you mention Trump really quickly, but yeah. I was just thinking about you know, obviously, there's a way in which certainly the privilege book fits into uh, a narrative about, you know, some of the internal contradictions of of Mm -hmm. neoliberalism, right? So that's an account that goes back to the 80s, because it's about Reagan, and it's about the rise of a kind of, you know, global meritocracy that refuses to name its own class status or something like that. But here we are, you know, we're probably 10 years into some different habitus or some different ethos so how does this how how does the argument fit into that like you talk about you know you talk some about you know the rise of nationalism in 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 the india context um you know so can we talk about like that whiteness and upper yeah
2: yeah
1: as distinctly new yeah
2: yeah? i mean i i do so i mean part of what i'm trying to do in the book is say that uh, this kind of comfortable way of inhabiting a kind of universal subjectivity, right? A kind of unmarked status. Mm-hmm. Um, that that um, that is increasingly cha- the ability to do that yeah. is mm-hmm. is increasingly challenged by oppositional movements, mm-hmm. right? Whether they are low caste movements in India or mm-hmm. um, minority you know minority rights movements, et cetera, in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? So there's a way that you know. The kind of the universal subject is exposed as actually being marked, Mm -hmm, right, right. and being marked by caste or race, or right. um, And so, what happens when 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 that that challenge is
0: posed, yeah, yeah, Um,
2: And I think that the what what happens is that suddenly um, the a a kind of commitment to liberal universalism phrase, Mm -hmm. right, Uh, and there's a kind of there's a retreat, right, uh, into a much more kind of defensive posture, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, right? And a much more explicit claim
0: to identity. Yeah. Right. But, so, but that does not seem to be what's happening at, in Khan's book they seem to be doubling down on on, and on the it. liberal individualism. Yeah. Yeah, how, how long if he wrote it I mean it was published in 2011 so let's mm-hmm. say the work was 2008 I it, like yeah. I'm, he wrote it I'm no, curious. I would yeah. be curious
2: and am um, curious whether there's yeah. a, there would be a difference now, right? Yeah. Um so so I do <laughs> there's been this kind of like uh a, a, re- a return to a much more kind of explicit claim mm-hmm. um, to racial or caste superiority. Yeah, But it's not the old racial or caste superiority because it's still kind of blended with notions of meritocracy.
1: right. Yeah.
2: Um, right. So... Um,
1: and you see that return as a cultural outgrowth of responses to minoritarian movement so, mm-hmm. so it's in so it's explicitly sort of provoked by this egalitarian yeah. possibility Absolutely. Yeah. yeah
2: yeah i mean i i think it's a kind of uh the more the push to share the pie and not just yeah. be benevolent patrons right yeah. right
0: and the, to, what, to kind of not be the ones who set the terms of how the pie is shared yeah yeah,
2: right? yeah. the more there's this kind of return and then which which begs the question of Where's this all heading? Right. Yeah. Like, right. If that's the response, you know, it, is there any possibility for a kind right. of a shared politics, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, which is actually about egalitarianism. Right. Mm-hmm. Right um and not just the recognition of multiple differences or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. and I um and I do I don't know. I mean, I I do think that there's, uh, there has to be some way of imagining democratic equality that doesn't sidestep historically dif- derived differences. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, right. one has to work through those in order to achieve right a kind of proper equality that's not just nominal, right? It's mm-hmm. it, where it's actually a sort of substantive form of equality. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, uh, and I think one of the reasons why a kind of that the sort of the earlier form of universalism was so hollow is because it was about the transcendence of difference mm-hmm. and not yeah. about the working through like, like lived embodied differences in order to come to something that was more, that's more equal. Does that make
0: right. sense? Right.
1: Actually, maybe that's a good pivot to talk about my recallable book, which yeah, is basically cool a book from the moment of the guilt moment. <laughs> so the book that I was thinking of um, is Nicholas Lehman's The Big Test. Mm-hmm. And I think it's was mm-hmm. 1999, yeah. but his it's the his secret history of the American meritocracy. And so it's about the SAT. And it's actually about, I mean, it's certainly about the... Um, privilege according to those old to the old ivies but also as somebody mentioned earlier the public ivies like the yeah. way in which mm-hmm. places like university of michigan and university of california also had a kind of um hyper porous screening mechanism that could draw people up into their world without fundamentally deranging the quality of the elite education they were offering so it's just a fascinating mm. it, it for me it helped me think about how the american paradigm of you know, public education has always had these internal differentiations in it. Um, but the thing that I wanted to say that relates to the guilt point is that, it, you know, Lehman does do a good job of explaining how this kind of new access into privileged education came out of the post war American sense that somehow society had to be committed to democratic openness, even though people weren't willing to allow that process to go completely. At least they had to sort of. Provide some kind of redemptive narrative, yeah, mm-hmm. and so I guess in a way, it's it's the case to be made for hypocrisy, you know. Then <laughs> that hypocrisy does produce some, you know, some element of openness, mm-hmm. um, but it's a fa- it's just a fascinating and, and it's granular account of how these educational systems can change superficially in so many ways without yeah. changing behind the scenes. It's, right, it's so worth reading. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. Um, it there's another book. Uh, by this intellectual historian, John Carson, mm. um, it's called. creating um, the title, the Measure of Merit, mm. and it's a comparison of France and the U.S. Oh, I'd love to
1: read that. Um,
2: yeah. And 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 the sort of like the twist in it is that France is this is the society I suppose that comes up with the IQ test, yeah. right? And the IQ test. Um, becomes all the rage in the United States. It get it. it people pick it up and run with it. Yeah, yeah, you know because it's it's fits so well with um, ideologies of of individualism, yeah. Yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, right? You know this idea of the kind of objective quantitative measurement of merit. Yeah. Uh, whereas it falls by the wayside in France, mm. right? Where you know sort of in- where the sort of notion of institutions and kind of expert judgment be um, so powerful, right, mm-hmm. um, that, that, that the
0: test is not allowed to kind of stomp That's in. Interesting. Power yeah, so, yeah, yeah. so that would be an interesting... Yeah, that would be a, a yeah, yeah. John, yeah. So mine is actually... Every time John does not bring up a 19th century novel, I feel that, that I awesome. must. Um, great. And in this case, it is Phineas Finn, which is written by Anthony Trollope. It's one of the Palliser novels. Um, and I thought of it because, you know, Phineas Finn is a... Um, a member of the Irish gentry, but he's Catholic and he's Irish, which is also kind of Marx, right? Mm-hmm. And he comes to London and he actually does very well, but there's a lot of conversation about him doing well, the reasons why he's doing well, even though he's Catholic and Irish. And there's quite a lot of sort of anti Irish mm-hmm. um, sentiment throughout Trollope's books. Um, and, you know, it, it comes down to these questions of breeding, he looks good in a coat. He knows how to hunt um, a variety of ways in which he kind of displays his um, capacity to join his merit, right? Mm. Um, And the other part of it that I found um, interesting and relevant is that this is a time when not um, tests to enter universities, but tests to enter the civil service are being Mm -hmm. um, instituted Mm -hmm. so that it's not only... um, you know, the children of the aristocracy or the gentry that are that are entering these things. And there's a lot of discussion. I mean, Trollope is really great about kind of bringing up these political questions sort of through the course of his plotting. And one of them is about the, um, and he's a little agnostic, like he's describing this as a kind of outrage, but there's also a little bit of a feeling that he's, there's mm-hmm. a sort of sociological take on it as well, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, of sort of, you know, why the country is going to the dogs. Because mm-hmm. now this example is being instituted
1: yeah there's gr- and there's a couple of great recent books one by jennifer ruth and one by lauren goodlad that are both accounts of basically the understanding of the profession and the career as diverging at this moment right, right. because the career is bureaucratically pegged to this kind of objective test mm-hmm. whereas the profession and something like doctor or lawyer would be the superb example that has right. this kind of internalized merit account mm-hmm. like right. the doctor is doing things on their own and they're somehow you mm-hmm. know away right, apart right, right. from that kind of yeah. um Quant- quantitative, yeah.
0: and then the other part of it is the which is the quality. Spirit, it's just the right? Yeah, who yeah. yeah. is yeah. yeah. explicitly understood to not know what the hell he's doing? Yeah, Trollope, right, yeah, yeah, and yeah, to yeah. not have any merit, and yet the idea that you know, and and they're sort of um, elected through these. Um, you know what are called rotten boroughs, where it's like basically the squire's decision who is going right. to be elected to parliament, right. and then they go and yeah. they sit there and they don't don't say anything for years on end. But yeah, it, that's that's so yeah,
1: that's quality. Yeah, that's a description Come to think of it, yeah. Yeah. that's actually yeah. a scripture. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's really helpful. Yeah. 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 Okay. And I, it actually, I think it connects. I'll to have their, to read, read Middlemarch with to description the, to the, yeah.
0: that sort of earlier phase in the Saint Paul's book where it's kind of like. It's kind of understood that these people are fuck-ups and yeah, they, you know, exactly. don't ever go to class. They have a gentleman's C, yeah. right? Yeah. And uh, they, yeah. you know, spend all their time getting drunk. And yet that's sort of... And yet it has no bearing in some weird it. way. Yes. Yeah. Right. That's the thing that we we are supposed to be preserving from the, you know, yeah. hordes that are <laughs> involved. Right? <laughs> yeah. So,
1: you know, yeah. I mean, so there's so many campus novels that have that quality. I was actually thinking about Donatard's Secret History, which you know is like my favorite campus novel. Yeah. That that the thing you think you're there for is not the thing you're actually there yeah. for. That it's yeah. that it's uh, that it's oblique um, to the, 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 the you know the putative um, certified reason for yeah. coming, and then there's that underneath. reason. Yeah. right, really right, yeah. Right
0: discuss. with that, and the knowing of that secret yeah. is part of your belonging, mm-hmm. right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, 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 and that's more than nonchalance. That's something other than nonchalance. And, and
0: if you
2: actually mistake one for the other, yeah, yeah, I mean that's the worst kind of naivete. Yeah, but,
1: yeah. yeah, that's yeah,
2: when yeah, you yeah. really know you don't. <laughs> yeah, 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 But you're there for is the grade. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So mine um, is a it's a memoir by a uh, woman named Sujata Gidla who's actually trained. She's a dalit. And she's from a Christian Dalit family in South India. And she was trained as an engineer. She went to one of these regional engineering colleges, not the kind of top tier, but the, the next tier. Um, and also did um, um, was a research scholar at IIT Majas mm-hmm. uh, for a time. Mm-hmm. And now works, um, migrated to the U.S., and now works as a conductor in the New York City subway. Oh, wow. wow. Um, and it's this... It's one of these stories, which is the story of modern India. So the mm. subtitle is "An Untouchable Family and the Making of Modern India," yeah. mm. and the title is "Ants Among Elephants." Wow, mm. that sounds great! Um, yeah. And it's this remarkable story, and sort of the two. Um, it's want well, I think of it as you know the story of the post independence period. Uh, from the vantage point of uh, a family's experience, mm-hmm. and yeah. a kind of a multi generational mm-hmm. account of that family's experience, and her. So the two the two characters that really sort of jump out and that are kind of the stars of the story are her uncle, her maternal uncle, who um, uh, who ends up uh, being this kind of communist radical, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, who is bent on sort of organizing the peasantry for revolution, mm-hmm. right? Um, but he's also this incredibly complicated figure, right, who, you know, um, falls in love with a kind of upper-caste girl and is shunned by her and mm-hmm. just is a, you know, there's, there's nothing sort of one-dimensional about any of these mm-hmm. characters. Mm-hmm. Um, her mother is this really interesting character who, um, who has a was kind of forced into, um, an arranged marriage, um, but is this, is this kind of shining star on her horizon and, right, makes it, lines things up in such a way that she's afforded every possible opportunity, Mm -hmm. right? And, and it's this, so, but she has this, like, really amazing way of talking about how caste, and especially to be a Dalit, was inescapable, right? Mm -hmm. Um, that you know, you, you couldn't but be above it. Mm. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, the sort of uh aspiration to unmarking wasn't even thinkable, mm-hmm. it's, it's mm-hmm. not thinkable. Um, but she also says that you know, it when she it was only when she came to the United States that she thought of her story as a story, right? Mm. Uh, so I mean, that, that just it give you a, a taste of it she says she starts my stories my family's stories were not stories in india they were just life mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. when i left and made new friends in a new country only then did the things that happened to my family the things we had done become stories mm-hmm. stories worth telling stories mm-hmm. worth kind of like story, right? mm-hmm. yeah yes yeah. and then the, it, each of these is a is a paragraph okay then the next one yeah. is i was born in south india in a co- town called kazipet in the state yeah. of andhra pradesh next paragraph I was born into a lower middle class family. My parents were college lecturers. I was born in Untouchable, film, right? right? Yeah. So it's it's a it's a kind of like coming to consciousness mm-hmm. story, mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. but but one where she was always conscious, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. it's a, it's quite remarkable, mm-hmm. and I've I've I haven't read anything like it.
1: Yeah. That sounds great. That's um, yeah.
2: And there is a whole there's a whole tradition of uh, of the kind of Dalit memoir, you know, mm-hmm. there are there are sort of there are their precursors to this, mm-hmm. um, they are kind of in the same vein, mm. but there's something about hers which is almost more compelling because mm-hmm. it's it's so unsentimental, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's transnational, right? Right, right? Which gives it a kind of unique twist. Yeah.
0: Um, anyway, so that's my recommendation. That's great. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, with that, we will say goodbye to you, Ajanta, for the moment. And thank you very much for this conversation. Oh, and thank you, John. Thank you so all.
1: much, yeah.
0: Recall this book is the brainchild of John Plotz and Elizabeth Ferry. It is affiliated with Public Books and is recorded and edited in the Media Lab of the Brandeis Library by Plotz, Ferry, and a cadre of colleagues here in the Boston area and beyond. Our music comes from a song by Eric Chaslow and Barbara Cassidy, Fly Away. Sound editing is by Claire Ogden, and production assistance, including website design and social media, is done by Matthew Schratz and Kaliska Ross. Mark DeLello oversees and advises on all technological matters, and we appreciate the support of university librarian Matthew Sheehy and dean of arts and sciences Dorothy Hodgson, and at the Mandel Center for the Humanities at Brandeis. We always want to hear from you with your comments, criticisms, or suggestions for future episodes. You can email us directly at ferry or at plots at brandeis edu or contact us via social media and our website finally if you enjoyed today's show please be sure to write a review of us on itunes stitcher or elsewhere you may be interested in checking out past episodes including topics like log, deindustrialization polynesia or some other angle altogether other episodes which we're calling recall this book in focus include conversations with samuel delaney Zadie smith annick lee and more to come and that thank you and good day